Thank you all so much for joining us and putting up with these authors um, who all had the amazing foresight to put out books during the global pandemic. Um, but I thought I would talk tonight about my great uncle, Alex McGee. Alex was my grandmother, Sala's older brother, and I first met him in 1983 when I was five years old. And my parents took me to Europe for the first time in order to meet the French side of my family. We went to Deauville, a seaside town in Normandy, because that's where Alex liked to go on holiday. He was small, bold, and tough like a bullet, and he dominated every meal we ate together, talking about all the famous artists and fashion designers he knew, all the glamorous people who came to his parties, how fabulous his life was. He was, as the cliche says, a character, and he was the kind of man who really stuck in the memory, even that of a five-year-old who was more interested in baguettes than hearing stories about Picasso. I saw Alex quite a bit as I grew up, especially after we moved to London. We used to go to Paris occasionally to have lunch with him at his flat on the Avenue Foch, which is the Paris equivalent of Central Mayfair. It was a real jewel of a flat, impeccably decorated and guarded over by a fearsome butler who would usher us in. But that was the least of it. Inside the walls were covered with paintings by Van Gogh, Cezanne, Picasso, even a Matisse personally inscribed to Alex hung in the bathroom almost as an afterthought. And sometimes he would come to visit us. I think um, Daisy's got a photo of him uh, when he came over to London for my bat mitzvah. Um, please admire my amazing 1980s style skirt suit, even though this was actually mid 1990s. And there's Alex. As you can see, we are about the same height at this point, about four foot 11. Uh, so a quick word though about my family. We are not grand. My father's father was born in a New York slum. My father's mother, like Alex, was born in a Polish slum. Yet Alex lived more grandly than anyone I've ever met. Being a self-obsessed teenager at the time, I never asked any questions that might have occurred to others. How did a man who was born in a Polish ghetto grow to have one of the most finest art collections in the world? And why was his surname McGee when his sister and brother were glass? So what was his secret? Now, it's not as though Alex had ever tried to hide his past exactly. On the contrary, he talked about it all the time how he had been one of the bravest soldiers in the Foreign Legion in World War II, that he'd, escaped, that he'd survived by escaping from the train that was taking him to the concentration camp. He and Picasso were close friends back in the 60s, so on and so forth. But none of us ever believed Alex's stories. He was a braggart and a bit slippery. That was his image in the family. And anything he said was taken with a big fistful of salt. When I was 21, I got my job at The Guardian, and as a journalist, I started learning to stop thinking about myself so much and to ask questions about other people. And just as I was starting to formulate questions about Alex in my mind, he died in 1999 at the age of 92. A few years after that, I started thinking about writing a book about my grandmother and her brothers after finding a shoebox that Daisy mentioned among the belongings she left behind when she died. In that box, among other things, was a sketch by Picasso clearly sent to her at some point by Alex, and she'd shoved it into her shoebox at the back of her closet. I then discovered Alex's unpublished memoir, also among my grandmother's belongings, typed up on loose leaf, loose leaf paper. That was a huge find, sort of, until I remembered that you couldn't, really see, you couldn't really believe anything that Alex said. And yet even with the memoir, I dragged my feet, and I spent 18 years on the research, which is probably about as long as some people out there have been alive. There were a couple reasons for this, but a very big one was that I was terrified of what I would find out about Alex. 
there was a big part of me that thought he might have been a collaborator during the war, which would explain not just how he survived, but how he thrived. Well, after 18 years of researching, I can tell you all that I do know the truth. And it's actually stranger than I ever could have imagined. Alex and the rest of the Glass siblings, two boys, Henri and Jacques, and little sister Sala, were born in Sharnoff, a Jewish shtetl in what was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but is now Poland. According to family lore, Alex was born fighting because he didn't cry when he came out and so the midwife slapped him. It was the last time Alex ever lost a fight. As a child, he would often get into scraps at school and he wouldn't stop fighting until he won. When he was 12, the first pogrom hit Poland and it happened in Sharnoff. In his memoir, Alex describes hiding under his bed with his mother and siblings and hearing the Catholic Poles outside, tearing through the town and killing Jews. After an hour, he ran out to fight back and he saw the familiar faces of his neighbors beating up his cousins. Something in me died in the face of this inhuman explosion of savagery, he wrote in his memoir. From that day, my childhood was over. And my grandmother would later tell me that she would remember Alex running back into the house, crazed with adrenaline, blood running down his forehead. The pogroms continued and eventually the Glass family fled to Paris. And in that sense, the pogrom actually saved their, the pogroms saved their lives. If they'd stayed in Sharnoff, they would have all been killed instantly in World War II, as the rest of the town's Jews were, sent to Auschwitz, just 18 kilometers down the road. In Paris, Henri and Jacques went to work in the Marais, which was then the city's Jewish ghetto and where most foreign Jews worked. Not Alex, he was determined to be a proper couturier, not just another Jewish tailor, as respected as Lanvin and Chaparelli. Incredibly, he succeeded, and at the age of 20, he opened his own salon near the Palais Royal. And I found several references to him and his precocious age in contemporary fashion journals. And he was described at the time as the Napoleon of Couture. It was when he opened his salon that he changed his name from Alex Glass to Alex McGee, because, he writes in his memoir, he wanted to sound more Parisian. This is undoubtedly true, but what that really means, and Alex would never have admitted it, is that, it's, is that he wanted to sound a little less Jewish. He claimed that Christian Dior was one of his draftsmen, meaning that he did the drawings of Alex's fashion designs. And I read this skeptically, but when I checked, checked the dates with Dior's biographies and Dior historians, they all matched up. Alex also became increasingly close to Jewish artists in Paris, particularly Marc Chagall and Moisha Kisling. And it was from seeing how they were increasingly being sidelined and derided by the French art establishment in the mid to late 1930s, that he realized France would soon turn against the Jews. It was because of that he sent his little sister Sala to America, where she married my grandfather, Bill. It is thanks to Alex that she survived and that I am alive today. In his memoir, Alex claims that before he went to fight for France in the Foreign Legion, he sent two of his favorite paintings, one by Kisling and one by Pasquin, to the Tel Aviv Museum. I called the Tel Aviv Museum to check this, certain they would laugh at me. Oh yes, Monsieur Magui sent those paintings to us in 1939. They are still in our permanent collection, the archivist told me. This started to become a pattern. Military records showed that he was, as Alex had said, celebrated for his bravery in World War, I, in World War II, even getting decorated with a bronze star. After France fell and was occupied, he escaped to the south of France where he hung out with Dior and he was allowed to reopen his salon because of his war record. According to him, his brother Jacques was arrested and sent to the French concentration camp Pithiviers but he was allowed out for two days to visit his newborn daughter. Alex sneaked back into Paris and begged him to run away, promising to help hide him, 
but Jacques went back and was then sent to Auschwitz where he was killed. Jacques was definitely killed in Auschwitz, but I couldn't imagine that he'd been allowed out of Pithiviers. Even the archivist at the concentration museum said, concentration camp museum said they'd never heard such a thing. But in the Shoah Museum in Paris, there was the proof on Jacques's records. Permission to leave for two days, 30th to the 31st of December. Back down in the south of France, life was pretty comfortable until the Germans arrived. One night in 1943, Alex was in a nightclub in Nice and the orchestra demanded they play French music. We know who you are, McGee. You're a Jew, said a Nazi in the club. That's right, I'm a Jew and you can go screw yourself, said Alex before walking out. The next day he was arrested. Now we come to one of Alex's great claims, that he was arrested and escaped from the train. I started by looking at the records for the camps. There is no record of Alex McGee getting off the train in Drancy, which is where he would have been sent. But there he was on September 25th, 1943, getting on the train in Nice. Once again, he had told the truth. So he had escaped, but how had he survived? Taking a punt, I called some resistance historians in central France to ask if they'd heard of a Jew escaping from the train. One day, I got an email from a man called Robert Pickenday. Here's some information from a former resident in Epi... Sorry, I'll try it again. One day, I got an email from a man called Robert Pickenday. It said, here's some information from a former resident in Epinas. He remembers Alex very well. He lived at the home of Monsieur and Madame Aymar, and their daughter, Madame Gustave, remembers a sporty Israelite who lived with them and then went back to Paris. Perhaps you would like to talk to her. So I headed to Epinas. Robert Pickenday drove me to Madame Gustave's house. It was almost entirely hidden by surrounding forests. I was certain this was a wild goose chase, but a charming one, and Madame Gustave ushered me into her front room for tea. She told me that she had lived in this house all her life. So Alex would have stayed here, I asked. Oh, yes, she said, just upstairs. And then she showed me the photos that nearly made me spit my tea on the floor. There were over a dozen photos of what was unmistakably my great-uncle Alex in the same house in a hidden bedroom upstairs taken 70 years ago. But how had he come here? Robert Pickenday resolved this query. A high-ranking man in Vichy known as Jean Perret had helped to hide some Jews in this area. Perret was an anti-Semite, but one who cared about the sanctity of France above all, therefore not exactly a Nazi because he didn't want France to be Germany. Alex knew him because he had made clothes for Perret's daughter as a couturier, and Perret took a shine to him. He protected Alex because of his war record, uh, even though he was Jewish, and he even incredibly visited Alex in Epinas. After the war, Perret was convicted for war crimes, and according to court records, Alex testified on his behalf, saying that Perret had saved his life, but it was to no avail. Perret was found guilty. Alex never told anyone about this. He had been saved by a member of Vichy, but he didn't lie about it either, because he understood that better than many that the truth doesn't have to be black and white. It can be gray. After the war, he returned to being a couturier, switching to art in the 1950s when he opened a gallery in Paris. He became so close to Picasso that the artist designed the poster for the gallery, which featured a drawing of a doe-eyed, curly-haired person, who Alex always said was supposed to be him. Now, Picasso definitely did make that poster, but this was one claim that turned out to be a clear fudge. Oh, sorry, this is a picture, sorry, I should have said earlier, of Alex in Paris with my grandmother next to him and a cousin. Uh, when he was still a couturier before the war. That's my fault. Sorry, I forgot to flag up that photo. And here's a photo of Alex with Picasso at a party. But if you look at the post, you can Google the poster online if you just type Picasso McGee. As you'll see, that poster looks absolutely nothing like Alex. Alex had very small eyes and had no hair. And so it was almost certainly Picasso's wife, Jacqueline. 
But why had Picasso taken such a shine to Alex? According to Alex's memoirs, because he was fascinated by Alex's history as a Jewish resistance fighter. T'es juif comme moi. That was the first thing Picasso ever said to him. You are Jewish like me. At the time, Alex thought he was speaking metaphorically, but he later told Alex that he wasn't. When I read this in Alex's memoir, I wasn't sure what to believe. Was Alex lying? Was Picasso? I'd never heard anywhere that Picasso was Jewish. But in the end, it turned out neither of them was lying. In John Richardson's biography of Picasso, he writes that Picasso's grandmother was of Jewish descent. So once again, Alex had told the truth. And this was the case, save for the drawing on the poster, with every fact I checked about Alex as I wrote the book. When he claimed that he gave a Modigliani drawing to I.M. Pei, I emailed Pei's sons who doubted the story. But two days later, they emailed me again. They'd found the Modigliani stuffed at the back of their father's closet, just as I'd found my grandmother's shoebox at the back of hers. When Alex claimed he was friends with Georges Pompidou, the former prime minister of France, I was skeptical again. But then in old society magazines from the time, there were photos of Pompidou himself at Alex's gallery. He also said he knew film stars. And there he is in Richard Burton's diary, with Burton writing excitedly about how he and Elizabeth Taylor were going to Alex's home the next day to look at paintings that will make Elizabeth's mouth water, he wrote. The strange truth about Alex was that actually everything he said was true. Why had we all doubted him? The answers were in front of us all along. He had survived, and we only had to look at his apartment to see how triumphant his life had been. Sometimes the answer really is right in front of you. Alex died in October 1999. The last time my father saw him, he was so weak, he was barely more than bones. Old age will take it out of even the strongest men. But that was okay with Alex. These are the last lines of his memoir. Take the time to look at a beautiful painting. Don't be afraid, just enter the painting. Let it embrace you like music. Life is worth the trouble of fighting death. <laughs>